Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Welcome to this episode of The Flow Line. We're sitting here in a corporate head office in Houston, Texas with AES Drilling Fluids, overlooking the beautiful I-10. It's cloudy. Uh, it's not raining quite now, but... Uh, Nonetheless, it's been an interesting week of weather, about, what was it, 70 degrees on Sunday and 45 on Monday morning. <laughs> Just like anything, it changes drastically. Raining the whole time. Yeah, exactly. We're swimming, but we're not nearly at uh, Harvey level, so we're good. Uh, so this is a bit of a different spin, everybody out there. We uh, we decided to, to uh, take this one into the interview world. So you have myself, Mr. Matt Offenbacher. Tell everyone hello. Hello, everybody. And uh, Vice President of AES, James Strickland. How are you, James? Doing well, thank you. Good, good. Well, we're excited to get you on the microphone. Have you ever done a podcast before? Never. Have you ever listened to a podcast? I have listened to one. (laughs) Which one was it? Uh, The one about Adnan Cyan. Um, Oh, Serial. Serial, yes. Yeah. What is that? I've heard, honestly, so many people, like, that's that used to be one of the best podcasts out there. What is it? Like, what's the plot? It was basically a murder, and then she investigated the crime. Okay. So you don't listen to it anymore? It's over. Well, it's over. Oh, so, but you listen to the whole season? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. Interesting. It's okay. now a, a HBO series, by the way. It is? Nice. Is it all, it's all, the whole series is out on HBO? It hasn't come out yet, but I saw an advertisement for it. Okay. Will this be an HBO series someday? It will be. What okay. we're going to do is I feel like we should take all of this, put it in a script, and then make like a like a, like a mud manual out of it, but not like a real technical mud manual, like a podcast slash mud manual. And then we can sign it and give it to all our customers. That'd be great. I feel like it'd be cool. <laughs> there you go. Great idea. All right. Anyway, so uh, James... You're obviously sitting here uh, next to the president. You've worked your way up in the oil field. A lot younger than most vice presidents out there. So tell us a story. You used to be a school teacher or a Spanish teacher, and now here you are just killing it in the oil field. So how how did you get to where you are, man? Wow, it's been a long time. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, going all the way back to the beginning, uh, graduated with a degree in Spanish from the University of Houston. Go Cougars. Yes. What's your favorite Spanish saying? You got anything? It's a not a kind. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> we can save that for an- another day. But uh, anything related to college, most of the time you can't say it on a professional podcast. So I respect mm-hmm. your uh, ethics there. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, sp- I did spend some time down in South America. I lived in Paraguay when I was in high school as a foreign exchange student. And then again, when I was in college, I did another half a year abroad in Chile, so nice. got to spend a little bit of time down there. So did you live with a family? Yep. Lived they, with they took a, you in with open arms, huh? Lived with a host family in Paraguay that uh, was a really, really good experience. They pretty much took me in as a as a child, as an actual son. Yeah. And it was fun. I had brothers and sisters, mom and dad. And, you keep in touch with them? You know, now with Facebook, every now and then... Um, there was a big lull between having any contact. We're now like every now and then yeah. kind of contact over Facebook. But. Right on. So did, was the dynamic like were the other kids jealous because this American stud came in and took over the family or did you get along with the other ones? No, I really got along with the other ones. And they were there was one sister that was younger than me. But then there was a, another sister that was college age and another one and another son that was older that was in college. So, okay. That's so they, cool. They treated me good. They all treated me good. And it's the fun. food was good, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so the my dad down there, we lived in a little city, or not a little, second biggest city in Paraguay called uh, Ciudad del Este. Okay. And Paraguay had a dictator, like a vicious dictator for like 40 years. His name was Alfredo Stroessner. <laughs> and him and my host dad were like best buds. No way! <laughs> Whoa. Nice. So you were you so, were deeply rooted in the like the 
like this. You were connected. He owned half the town, if not mm. more. That's good. Great. Good host family. Yeah. All right. At least if you're going to go to somewhere's like that and you're connected with someone like, you know, who's, who's got your back, I felt like you could have just walked and done whatever you want and been like, oh, do you know who I am? Like, do you know who I am? And you'd have been set, man. Well, he had like a restaurant and a hotel and stuff. And like, I'd go down to the, no to the hotel and at the restaurant, I'd eat and then they'd come out, they'd bring my bill and I'd sign it. James Strickner, James Strickland, um, Martinez. <laughs> <laughs> you could kind of be wherever you wanted. Down yeah, there. yeah. I feel, was it tropical? It's a tropical down there. It's subtropical. It's, okay. uh, it's landlocked. It's right there. Kind of North of Argentina, South of Bolivia. It's smack dab in the middle of South America. Okay. Do you have any stories or like, what was your favorite part about being living down there? <sighs> you know, honestly, like the, you learn to be independent real quickly at yeah. a young age. Like most people don't really get to be independent until they go to college maybe. Right. But I mean, when you stripped away from all your friends and family and you're stuck in a land where like three people in the whole town spoke English, like, yeah, you know, you learn to survive pretty quickly and so would, in, independently minded. So would you say it was kind of like a rite of passage for you going there and kind of just creating, you know, being there by yourself, like you said, a family that took you in, but it's not like you had mom that you could just like go cry to. It's like you, you kind of had to grow up and nut up at that yeah, point. Yeah, I mean, like now it'd be a different experience because with cell phones and internet and, you know, FaceTime, I could talk to my friends every single day. Like I, I literally talked to my parents like once a month on the phone. Wow. How did they take it? Were your parents sad or were they excited to get you out of the house? No, they they didn't really necessarily want me to go, but I insisted on it. So gotcha. Good for you, man. No, that's super <laughs> cool. So you after living in Paraguay, what happens? Then I came back. I had my senior year of high school to do. And literally like I came back and school started the next day. Were you like, this place is a joke? Or like, how does it feel to come back and you've kind of been living pretty good and then come back and you've got your just your last year of high school, you're kind of thinking about checking out? What, what was that like? Well, you know, actually, since I missed my last semester of my junior year, I had to make it up. Oh. So I had to go to night school <laughs> at the same <laughs> wow. time that I was doing my senior year. Nice. Which, I mean, night school is not really difficult, but time-consuming yeah i mean it you know i don't think that uh i looked at it that from that perspective but uh it i think it prepared me well and then you got to u of h and one of the things i kind of enjoy is hearing your stories of like we kind of call like classic houston like living in the Heights before it was really cool and actually quite dangerous. And like just, just these other old restaurants that have been around for forever. Or maybe people still talk about that aren't around. Oh yeah. We, we, uh, yeah. So going to U of H my freshman year, we lived or I lived in the dorm. And of course, right after that, the, your sweet mates and buddies, we went and found a house in the Heights. This was back in 96. And like you said, it was, I mean, there were some nice places, but there was a lot of slummy places, and it, you know, it was it was very scattered. And yeah. now you go there, there's bars and restaurants and fun stuff to do. Back then, there was the Spanish Flower, and was that a bar or was that? It was a restaurant. It's still there. Oh, it is right there on Main and Airline. Okay. But there weren't really any bars back then. Uh, so what was so living in the Heights, going to school? You were majoring in like Spanish, Spanish. Then? Okay, cool. So I, what was I mean during college, living in the Heights? I mean, what was that like being in Houston at that time? And for college, for you, I mean, did you go to college? I mean, obviously you did the. Uh, you know, the foreign exchange and go to college, do Spanish. Was that kind of at that point in your life? Did you think? teaching and then language was your career path or was it just something you stumbled upon? Honestly, I was naive enough to think that if I studied something that I enjoyed, then 
life would work out and I would find a job because the byproduct because be that's <laughs> that's what you do. You just follow what you like to do, right? Yeah. People used to ask, so when you graduate, what are you going to do with this degree? And I'd say anything but teach. <laughs> and then Speaking when I Spanish. and then I graduated and I realized the only thing I was qualified to do was teach. <laughs> nice. So what happened at that point when you graduated? Were you did you have a job lined up or what? I did one more rip through South America. Backpacked around. This time it was Peru, Chile, Bolivia. Actually went back down to Paraguay. Okay. Did you go visit your family? Yeah. No way. I tried to go for like a week, and they kept me there for like four weeks. <laughs> nice. <laughs> ah, come back, James. We love you. They just didn't want me to leave, and they it was fun. So. That's so cool, man. Right on. Yeah. Uh, came back and started working. Okay. And as a teacher? Teacher at a private right. school in uh, Bel Air. Okay. What was that like? I mean, you out of college, you obviously know Spanish or know enough to teach kids, and uh, you're on your own. I mean, what what was life like back in Houston then? You know, I was still young and uh, probably didn't. I had never actually taken a teaching class or an education class, so I had a lot to learn on that end. But, uh, you know, I feel like I did an all right job as best, as best as I could. They didn't even have a Spanish program before I got there. So, so you, you know, set the platform for Spanish yeah, teaching probably set the it pretty, school pretty low, I'm sure. <laughs> That's good. Regardless of where you set it, as long as you set something, it's good. Yeah, and then, you know, I was still living over there. In the, I think I, at that point I was in a garage apartment somewhere off Montrose. Yeah, that says a lot. For... I don't know, I think I was paying like 250 bucks a month rent or something. Rents have gone up since then, from what yeah, I hear. That place doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> There's now a condo there. Right. So, what, uh, you, you taught for, what, a couple of years, and, and then what? Two years, and then I just quit. I just said, you know, this I'm not good at this. <laughs> this is not what I'm meant to do. <laughs> and I had a summer to basically, you know, you get paid over 12 months. Yeah. So, I had three months to find a job and it just so happens that my wife now girlfriend at the time had a friend that we went to dinner with and her husband was a project engineer at a mud company and he said ah oh. I was like tell me a little bit about that and he told me about what he did what he used to do in the field I was like man that sounds pretty cool you think I can give you a resume so yeah give me your resume so I sent him my resume and that mud company called me the next day, and I got hired the following day. <laughs> Man. So they were obviously in need of a Spanish teaching mud hand. I think back then, this is in 2001. Okay. I think there was a push to hire guys with college degrees as opposed to Derek hands. maybe like Derek hands <laughs> that had worked their way up and had kind of just followed that. Instead of going to the drilling right. side, they go to the mud engineer side. I think at the time, this particular company was looking to, you know, hire people with college educations. Yeah. And it didn't really matter if it was Spanish or biology or... Regardless, as long as they could prove yeah. that they could go to college and get a degree, yeah. that was sort of the litmus <clears throat> test. And like, hey, you meet the standard and, you know, you, we understand you can learn and you know, apply concepts. So, nice. So, you got hired. Like, when you say hired on, did they put you to mud school right away or did you go to a rig right away? So, they hired me. And mud school started like the next week. So I went, I actually went to a rig for that week. Lost, didn't have a clue what I was doing. Didn't, never been on a rig. I don't even know if I've ever seen a drilling rig before. Do you remember what kind of rig it was? Oh God, it, it was right outside of Wharton, kind of around the El Campo area. Okay. Um, they get some classy rigs down there from what I hear. I can't even remember what the. No. Yeah, I'm sure it was a while back, and you probably out there. You probably didn't even know what you were looking at, let alone figuring no, I, out what kind of rig it was. I had no idea. <laughs> nice. And 9/11 had just happened too, so like, oh wow, everything was, you know, the the mud engineer. Everybody out there just didn't know what had just happened, so it was kind of wild. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Huh. So then, then after that, you went to mud school. Yeah, and so then that next week, mud school started. Cool. And back then, and I mean, even now, I guess the majors. They hold a pretty lengthy mud school, right? I want to say it was eight weeks. Yeah, usually they're about eight weeks. Wow. Yeah. 
not the FMI five weaker up in Grandview, <laughs> which is the one that no, I would it, do. No, it was a little bit more lengthy than that. Yeah. Probably, yeah. probably half as fun, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, and, you know, with the longer mud schools, too, when you're working for a global service company, they try and teach you all these systems, and about two-thirds of them you'll never see if mm-hmm. you're dedicated to a geographical location. Um, you know, it's just the drilling environments are different or regulations, and so you just you don't, you don't only end up seeing a couple, but they teach you everything, and that takes eight weeks. Yeah, your first three weeks you probably learn everything you need. And then you're learning about completion fluids and, you know, solids control, all these other packages. Right. Actually, that mud engineer that I worked with for that first week before I went to mud school. Yeah. He ended up working for me up in PA. No way. <laughs> Isn't that funny in the oil field? Like, I know guys that, actually, funny story enough, when I went uh, from here, worked for, the, for another mud company for a while, I was a night hand for a mud engineer that works on one of our accounts now who I'm over. So he always bugs me. He's like, you were my night hand and now you're my boss. But it's funny how like the industry you shift and you move and you bounce. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's all too common. (laughs) Oh yeah. Small old film. Yeah. You gotta be nice to people. It always comes back around. Yeah. Yeah. So you start out as a, as a mud engineer and, and where are you working and, and what's that like for you getting started? So right after mud school, Actually, I was on It's kind of a, another coincidence. The very first job that I went on was right behind Katie Mills Mall. It's a gas storage facility called uh, Aquila, Aquila Storage. You probably drive by it all the time, don't even know it. It's, it's on uh, Katie Fluellen Road. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. I've actually right been on, on a workover over there. Yeah. So yeah. They, they have a... Uh, it's a pretty big facility. They got all these big evergreen trees right in front of it, so okay. you never even know it's there. Yeah, I probably drive by it all the time. But if you come down Katie Fluellen before it hits Pin Oak, yeah, you go right by it. Okay. Yeah, that's right by my house. I've probably driven by it a thousand times. <laughs> so you worked mm-hmm. on a rig out there drilling little shallow wells? Or? You know, I don't even remember the depths, but it was old. Well, so it was actually oil-based mud, and then we displaced the Flow Pro. We displaced to a reservoir drilling fluid. Yeah. And... uh they had three rigs, big rigs. I mean, you could throw a rock from one to the other. Hmm. Interesting. So I worked there, and it was all drive-by. And for most miserable work in my life, <laughs> get there at 5 in the morning, leave at midnight, right? come back the next day at 5. It, so, so for the listeners out there in the mud world, when you say, when, when we refer, refer to the term drive-by, there's sort of two service options. You have 24-hour service where the mud engineer stays on location. Uh, it basically lives on location and is responsible for, for being there 24 hours a day. And drive-by um, is, is, a, is a form of service where you go to the rig, you conduct a, a fluid test, you chat with the people on location, you come up with a plan and give it to the rig crew or the company man, whoever who's sort of executing the job and you leave. So it's a different form of service. So you're, you're, you're engaged, but not quite as much as being on location the whole time. But like James is saying, you're, you're at home and you're, you're going out there at all hours of the day, you're getting calls. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little, it's quite a bit different than staying on location the whole time, but it can be strenuous from what I gather, just the hours that you're working and you never really know when you're going to get called. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a kind of a, Difficult schedule to manage. Right. So how long did you work in the field around that area until you got, because you eventually came into working in Houston, right? Yeah, so it didn't last very long at all. There was kind of a slowdown right there at the end of 2001. I was hired out of the, what we called back then, it was the Houston region. Mm -hmm. And uh, my boss called me up one day and he said, hey, we're going to transfer you to work offshore. Okay, what am I going to He's like, you're going to be a compliance engineer. I said, what's that? He said, oh, hell, I don't know. You're going to help all them mud engineers offshore. Okay. So then we, <laughs> Whatever, boss. <laughs> yeah. So I got transferred to uh, our division, which is basically out of New Orleans. And the EPA had just started a discharge regulations for synthetic-based mud. And the regulation stated you had to burn a retort every 500 feet 
and the total um, oil on cuttings had to be below a certain percentage. And, you know, you did static sheens. You did, you know, a couple tests every day, every week. And uh, so they basically took all the guys from my mud school that lived around Houston or in Louisiana, and we all became compliance engineers. <laughs> nice. And a compliance engineer, I mean, it really is confirming that compliance, keeping the paperwork correct. And um, there's a, it's a very important role in some ways and probably underappreciated, but it was also kind of seen as, as a foray once it got established as, as a way you, you do a good job doing that. And eventually you become an offshore mud engineer, right? It, it actually became a, a great training mechanism because there were some guys that they, they didn't care. They didn't care about, you know, being promoted. They wanted to go work their 14 days and burn their three retorts a day and go to sleep and, you know, go home and do it all over again. We call that Cadillac. <laughs> <laughs> or there were guys that said, look, I'm, I'm going to learn everything I can while I'm out here and stay, you know, right next to the mud engineer and learn everything he's doing. There's a lot of great mud engineers who work offshore. And that's kind of what I did. I tried to take that opportunity to learn as much as I could. And then when one day I got the call and I was bit later progressions of compliance engineers did not go to mud school first. They were hired as compliance engineers. So we were lucky enough to be, have already completed mud school. So, uh, when we finally got the call to go back to work, we were now we were working in the Gulf of Mexico already. Um, for the most part, working fourteen and fourteen, no more day checking. Right. And uh, yeah, when you you just flip the switch and you, it's almost like uh, you put this other hat on and you slide right in. And there's not much of a transition time because you, it's almost like you've been doing it the whole time. Right. So would you say having that experience as a compliance hand sort of gave you a bit of a stronger resume as a mud engineer to know what you're looking for? I mean, granted, you obviously learned a pretty good skill set doing that, even though it's very repetitive. But you probably understood, you know, why you did certain things the way you did it to be able to help, you know, become a better mud engineer, I would imagine. Just learning what rig operations Learning rig operations, but not being in the critical role of a mud engineer, right, is is a incredible thing to learn. Because if you picture you've never been on a rig before, and you go offshore, and you're in charge of this six thousand barrel synthetic based system, you know, at eight thousand foot of water, if you don't even know what it means to pull out of the hole or to trip pipe or to you know do all these other things that we take for granted now, yeah. And now you got to learn a whole new vocabulary on top of learning a new job and doing it at a very high level. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the compliance, to me, the compliance role was beneficial for training and, and really learning rig operations and mud, but really the whole picture before you're put in that hot seat. And then, as I understand it, I mean, you know, leading up to the time we actually met that you were one of the best mud engineers in the Gulf of Mexico. That was a story I was told. So tell us, tell us how you got there. I, I think that's what they told you because I happened to be the only one available. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the best one available, man. <laughs> well, <laughs> James, we get to fabricate whatever version of events we want to have. So, you, you know, you could take off the humility and just be like, no, I was, I was pretty good. <laughs> But, uh, humble, I mean, man. you know, you were working offshore for, for quite a while, right? Yeah, so I was offshore from basically the end of 2001 until 2009. Some of the years compliance, some of the years mud engineer. But uh, <clears throat> we, uh, I jumped around. There, there were some jobs that, uh, you know, the, they try to keep you on the same rig as much as you can until it goes away or goes into completion. So I had a pretty long stint with uh, some of these offshore TLPs where I would stay with the same operator, but go from one platform to the next. Okay. And then uh, after that work finished, then I went to another operator. So the most, for the majority of my offshore 
experience was with two different operators. And that was all deep water pretty much too, right? Yeah, it was all deep water for the most part. And, and that's significant, particularly during that era, if you will, you know, deep water was breaking out and it, it was a, you know, only the kind of the best of the best of the equipment and the people and the technology was out there. So to be in the Gulf of Mexico, you were kind of in the middle of it all. And, and a lot of that technology, a lot of those methods that they, they were trying to get those exported all over the world because it was the first place where they were drilling under those conditions uh, and really finding significant success. Yeah, I was on, actually, when I was a compliance engineer, um, I was on the rig where we did, where the very first deep water field trial of the flat rheology mud came out. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of standard in the, offshore environments today. The, the, first, the first run of one of the major service providers' uh, rotary steerable tool was on actually the same rig. Um, yeah, there was a lot of new technology that, you know, and you, you even just in my short time there, I, I think when I first got offshore, you you saw a lot of bicenter bits. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've heard of a bicenter bit in the last 10 years. What um, is that? I don't even know what that is. Well, so in, instead of, like, say you want to drill a eight and three quarter inch hole and your casing ID is eight and a half, then you have a bit that's less than eight and a half, but it's but it's off center. Oh, okay. So it 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 drills a bigger gauged hole because it's not a the middle of the bit is not the I don't know what we call that the the well the axis of rotation yes um it is offset so you're gonna drill the the cutter side is gonna be bigger. Um, oh, okay. Relative to kind of where you you pick Makes it from, sense. if you will. Wow. Yeah, that's I'm, I've never even heard of that. Well, I'll well, probably have to put a picture in the show notes because that was a real bad verbal we'll, description. We'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. that's something interesting for guys like myself. Uh, I've only pretty much ninety nine percent of my career has been on land. You know, either just roller comb, typical roller comb bits, PDCs. That's some interesting technology that I never even heard of. But uh, nonetheless, it's a good thing we have Matt in here. Uh, you can probably understand at this point he's our technical guy. So. Any questions you have related to mud typically go to Matt. So yeah, James what, and I what he just said earlier. That's yeah, what I yeah. meant to say. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Matt's email will be not in the show notes because he doesn't want to get bombarded. But nonetheless, he's our guy. And then we went. We when we got out of the the uh, the by center bits. I swear, every job I went on for the next five years had an under reamer on it. Although, I mean, underreamers were a huge deal. Every single job had an underreamer. I mean, some of the some of the service companies actually set up whole divisions on just borehole enlargement um, because they were making so much money off of these tools that went behind the bit and actually had cutters on them that expanded and would, would make the hole even larger to allow more margin to run casing and mm -hmm. that sort of thing, which was more important in deep water. Um, but they were expensive, and everybody wanted them. Yep. So uh, all these other cool new inventions are happening. Um, you're working pretty pretty regular. Um, and I guess eventually you started to make a transition towards the office, right? Yeah. So in side note, if there's anybody out there that works in the field and they want to someday work in the office, make sure your boss knows this. Because <laughs> um, I made a point to tell my boss every time I saw him that, hey, something something pops up in the office, I'm willing to go. I said, are you willing to move to Houston? Yes, sir. That's where I'm from. So right. just a side note. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you never, you know, sometimes you just got to ask for it. It's kind of a common theme around here. You just don't be afraid to ask for what you want. So it's mm -hmm. a good point, man. So actually, one of the guys that he was the compliance supervisor was an account manager for an operator and he got promoted to another position and he knew me from when I worked under him in, in compliance and he knew that you know I'd been trying to get a job as a project engineer so he kind of put in a good word for me and my boss put in a good word for me and that's how I ended up back in Houston. Nice so how long did you work in Houston as a project engineer before 
working for it was fmi at the time right when you came on board with us yeah it was fmi they'd already been bought out by ces but they were still operating under the fmi division of ces okay or a division of as right um but when i so when i first started working in houston it was for an offshore operator and right when i got here they farmed out their rig for like six months, and as a as a project engineer for an off for an offshore operator, you really had one rig that you watched. And I was like, "Oh, that's not good. What am I going to do now?" <laughs> and uh, my boss, like my second week at the, at the office, my boss came and asked me, "Hey, James, you have a passport?" <laughs> I was like, uh, "Yeah. Why?" He's like, "I'll get back to you." And that's where I met Mr. Offenbacher. I I got to go to uh, Baku to help them introduce the flat rheology mud to the Caspian Sea. And I, as a single guy with really nothing to do, anytime anybody came into town, I was supposed to show them where to eat and entertain them. And so when James wasn't out on the rig, we'd go have a few beers and wander around Fountain Square and kind of got to know each other. He muled over a few granola bars when he would fly back and instant mashed potatoes. Instant mashed potatoes. I was <laughs> I was a desperate bachelor. You can't get a lot of that stuff over there. I, w- I wasn't eating well. <laughs> I don't know so if it was funny. much better when he brought that stuff. But uh, <laughs> yeah, another story of be nice to people because it always goes back around. Uh, <laughs> you know, James called me if uh, you know out of the blue a couple of years ago, and that's what brought me to AES. But it was from our getting to know each other back in. Azerbaijan, and what was that about? Twenty ten. Yeah, twenty ten. Okay, time ago. Hey, we, yeah, crazy. You, you meet people in this industry in one part of the world, and you end up working for them in another or with them. It's crazy. But uh, so you were out there. Would you say there was a lot of technology and advancements uh, brought over there from proving them? Like, was the U.S. a proving ground to take technology overseas or? I think it definitely is a proving ground. Um, and I think they successfully implemented this uh, system over there. Uh, it wasn't incredibly deep water, so they didn't have that really cold riser temperature like what we have in the Gulf of Mexico. So it might have been a different application than what we used it for. But from what I understand, it was ultimately successful, wasn't it? Sure. I think it... it- it got the job done and, and did what we needed to, but um, it is true that it was so well established in the Gulf of Mexico that when you, when a customer wants it somewhere else, they get a lot more comfortable and we say, hey, we're going to bring somebody over who's got a lot of experience with this to roll this out uh, to a new location. So, you know, that's that's where James came in and just kind of made sure that everything went over smoothly in the initial deployment and then uh, made his merry way back to Houston. Nice. How long were you overseas for? I, I went two hitches. They were about 30, 35 days apiece. Okay. And you were married at the time? Yeah. How was the wife feeling about that? She wouldn't have been so upset if I didn't have a two-week-old baby at the house. <laughs> nice. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I can imagine how well that would go over. But it worked out all right. Hey, you're a happily married man still, so That's obviously right. it wasn't too bad. No, it worked. She was used to me. I mean... The timing couldn't have been better. She was used to me being gone anyway because I was yeah. fresh off the rigs. Right, right. So all you husbands out there who think you have it bad, when you know, just think if you had to leave for two weeks or a month or whatever, uh, that, that's pretty tough. And in the oil field, that's pretty standard, being away from family. I mean, we all make major sacrifices to drill holes in the ground. So, you know, I applaud you for doing that. And, you know, I know your wife, she's sweet, and she gives a bunch of support. So shout out to James's wife, too. <laughs> Shout I'd like out. to second that. Yeah. <laughs> I want in on this too. Okay, don't leave me out. <laughs> Matt's wife, you're cool too. You've made a lot of sacrifices. Let's give a huge shout out to all the wives. <laughs> Very patient women. Yes, exactly. So then you came back to Houston with the same company. Uh, how long before you ended up making the jump over uh, to this side? So it was... Uh, I, I stayed there. I stayed in... With, with the competitor until 2011. Actually, the kind of the the way I came into the working land was the Macondo incident happened and they had the moratorium on all offshore drilling mm. 
So they took me from my Deepwater account, which, by the way, the, the rig came back, and I was now a project engineer for Deepwater Rig. And uh, since we couldn't drill offshore anymore, I got moved into the land side of things. Gotcha. And <clears throat> you you were on the rig, uh, and if you don't mind speaking on it a little bit, you were on the rig on the horizon, right? I was. That was the the last rig that I worked on before I got moved wow. into the office. So I, I think I was on that rig uh, about a year. Wow. And you knew a lot of people that worked on it and... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Was it tough watching? I mean, you obviously have seen the movie. Was it tough watching it? Did it bring back memories? They, yeah, it was tough. Um, You know, it, it was Hollywood. So there had to be a villain and there had to be a hero. Yeah. But it was, to me, it was incredibly realistic. They did a really good job of, um, you know, showing the rig floor and the shaker house and stuff like that. I mean, it, it looked pretty realistic to me. Wow. Yeah, that's an unfortunate event. We still, anyone in the oil field's heard about it, and, uh, you know, it's why we take safety and environmental to a whole other level now. So, uh, but nonetheless, uh, moving on. So you you worked as a pro, you came back, worked as a project engineer, and then who who reached out to you to come on to with FMIAS? So one of the guys that I used to work with, um, had moved up to Pennsylvania with FMI. Right. And he called me up one day and said, hey, come talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then uh, they offered me a job, and it seemed like a good opportunity, and packed our bags and moved to Pittsburgh. Yeah. What year was that? That was 2011. Okay, so that was right after I had lived there. And when I was a mud engineer, actually one of my first jobs was, and that's how we met. Mm-hmm. I was up there as a mud engineer working for uh, you know one of the operators that you were looking after. And and I remember one of the, one of the first memories I have of talking to you was it was like 2 in the morning and I was we were running synthetic. and uh, You messed up that displacement. No. Ah, <laughs> Whose version do we start with? <laughs> Hey, whatever. If it was my fault, I'll take ownership. But we had, we had made a displacement from what I think was air to going to old yeah. synthetic. And we had lost a bunch of mud over the shakers or whatever it was. But we were down a bunch of volume. And I was freaking out because we were about to charge off a significant amount of synthetic. So I called Jan. I'm like, what do you want me to do? Freaking out. And that was probably our first sort of real interaction. And so, you know. Apologize for waking you up, but I think it was the best thing for uh, making sure that I didn't get in complete <coughs> crap. <laughs> but uh, we survived. Yeah, we did. Shoot. Uh, so you went up there. You went up there as an account manager. Yes. Okay. So what was it like in PA when when everyone around there, at least when I was there, had were not fans of oil and gas? <laughs> it was interesting, you know, because you the guys on the neighborhood I moved to was not close to where the most of the oil field was situated or where the personnel lived at least. And uh, I think I was the first Texan most of them have ever met. <laughs> I was out, uh, you know, they, they'd they ask my wife, like, do y'all own guns? And like, well, do shotguns count? They're, they're like, yeah. They're like, well, yeah, we've got shotguns. Who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody up here. <laughs> But no, you know, honestly, it, you, you, I think you you would see the anti-fracking movement, yeah, more so out there in the in the field than you see it in, in the city. Because in the city, they just see more jobs and right. You know, it's kind of the cleaner side of things. Mm-hmm. So, what was uh, your experience like up there? I mean, the drilling was obviously a lot different offshore. What would you say the biggest difference was that you've seen, you know, from a fluid or a drilling operation standpoint from going from offshore onto land? It, it's just very, very cookie cutter. You drill the same well over and over and over. Um, whereas offshore, you know, you have every well is different. Every single well is different. You know, yeah. You're, you're, um, there's different challenges to both, you know, for offshore, the challenge is getting the well down and 
you know, getting casing down and, and maybe drilling in a block where no one's drilled or, you know, reaching a new depth no one's drilled. And uh, on land, the, the, the challenge is perfecting it, yeah. having something that's repeatable over and over and over. And it's just a different challenge, but it, it's still a challenge nonetheless. Right. And obviously along with that comes logistics when you're having to boat everything out to a rig versus, I mean, Pennsylvania has some some challenging leases to get to, but uh, I would imagine that that would probably be something, especially as a money engineer and even an account manager, when you're help planning, you know, your business, uh, you've got a mud plant anywhere from 20 to 100, 200 miles yeah. away on land versus offshore. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how much easier or what the difference was with, with logistics. Yeah. With a deep water mud engineer, your half your job is logistics. I mean, you, you probably got a anywhere from a 24 to a 48 hour round trip on a huge work boat that, you know, I mean, the work boat might have a $60,000 day rate, you know, you, you can't just spot one when you need it if you forgot something. So, yeah, you know, you gotta, you gotta plan your business, um, for sure. But on the flip side, you know, if you, I don't know, <laughs> Matt could tell you on a lot of these deep water jobs, you, you drill for three or four days, and then you run pipe for about 10 days. Yeah, so. there's a lot of casing. Like for as much as <laughs> the thing is in deep water, they run so many strings of casing because the formations are so weak that you drill, you drill fast. You've got, you know, nobody cares about the cost of keeping everything in shape. And then you stand around waiting for to run casing and do a cement job. So that was the thing that surprised me when I first went deep water was, wow, we spent a lot of time just kind of hanging out. <laughs> nice. Yeah, a lot of uh, video watching and trying to connect to internet if you have it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> nice. So you ended up from Pennsylvania. You uh, obviously established yourself there. You went into division manager, right? You worked your way up into that, and then. <clears throat> yeah, our division manager um, kind of got promoted to or moved to Denver, and then he eventually left the company. And the, they promoted me to division manager at the Northeast. Nice. What was it like managing a district for a company our size versus working for a major? You know, was obviously just the amount of personnel involved. What What did you see that was the biggest takeaway? Actually, two-part question. What was the biggest takeaway working for a major? And how was it different than managing a whole division with a significant amount of less people compared to, say, yeah. like obviously who you were with before? You know, when it when I was working <clears throat> with my previous employer, I had a very narrow vision of what we did. I had my single job, and that's what I did. I took care of, you know, what was going on in the rig, and I talked with the mud engineers, talked with the customers. But beyond that, I had absolutely no idea where our products came from. Um how they were sourced, why they were sourced. Um, whereas now when you come to a company our size, now you're involved with, I didn't even set as a project engineer, I didn't even set price lists. Like that was all set by someone on the sales side. So I wasn't even in charge of making sure we made money. Right. I just was in charge of making sure the job went good. Right. Um, and then when you come to a company our size, you know, it's more you take over the role from inception all the way through the life of, of the customer and the project. You know, you you might one day you're a salesman and you you pick up a job and then you do the project engineer thing where you make sure the job goes well on the rig. Uh, you do the salesman thing where you set the price list. Um, you interact with the customers. But you're also interacting with the warehouse on a daily basis. You're interacting with procurement. You're interacting with everybody, not just assuming that all that stuff is taken care of by somebody else. Right. So how old were you when you became district manager of the Northeast? Uh, I guess I was 38, maybe. 38. So, I mean, that's pretty young. And as a vice president now, it's only been a few years. What would you say helped you or what kind of mindset or work ethic did you establish to to work your way up because 
a lot of guys work in the field for, you know, 10 or 15 years and they're trying to get into the office and there's not many guys that move into the role that you're currently in, especially with someone who went to school to want to be a Spanish teacher. I mean, were you just kind of driven to work and, and succeed and, and see opportunities and capitalize on them? I mean, what kind of, what sets you apart from someone else trying to get into a, someone in a role like where you're at? You know, honestly, I, <clears throat> Matt was lying earlier when he said I was one of the best mud engineers. I, I don't think I was an outstanding mud engineer, but I was very particular. You know, I, I kept my inventory in order. You know, I I made sure I had notes that if the company was going to ask me a question, you know, how many strokes was it to bottoms up? How much bear ride would it take to weight up a pound? You know, all these things. I had all these meticulous notes that I kept every day in my in my tally book, and I made sure that I did the work mm-hmm. to where, you know, I, some nobody would catch me off guard. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't go out there and break down a pump and rebuild it. Sure. Um, if the hopper got stopped up, you know, I could stick a pole in there or something. But you know, if, if you had to tear apart the hopper, that that's not me. Right. Right. So I, you know, you understood my limitations as far as um, equipment on the rig, and you know, but I feel like I did my job to the best of my ability. I took pride in what I did. I think that touches on a, on a very good point: is having pride in what you do. Because nowadays, a lot of guys they take pride in trying to, you know, advance as quick as they can and, and take shortcuts. But it sounds like you just you did your job. You did it to the best of your ability. You did the small things, and it's the little things that count. And so it seems like you were always prepared and, and ready for anything that came at you, uh, to which if you have that mindset and you come to work and you do that every day, the right opportunities are going to come up. And it's something my dad always told me. He said, you know what, son, it's it's funny how lucky you get when you just work hard. And if you work hard, you'll continue to succeed, and everything that you want will eventually come your way. And it sounds like that's kind of the mindset you I, have. I think that's right. I, I think that – uh you know, even when I was working offshore, I was I was uh, became a a lead engineer, working days. You know, was on a, on these deep water jobs at a fairly young age. I don't I don't know if it's normal or not, but it took one of the older gentlemen that I was working with. He'd been a mud engineer for thirty years. He called my boss and he said, "Hey, I think it's time for Strickland to step up to the plate. I think he's ready." So it kind of goes with the what you're saying, you know, do a good job, keep your head down, do what you're told, and hopefully somebody's going to recognize it. Yeah, exactly. So if we're doing our job as managers, then we'll recognize it. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so with with now that you're at AES here in Houston, uh, you did a bit of a stint out in West Texas, right, for a little while as a, as a district manager over there, right after Pennsylvania? Correct. For a brief for a brief while, but yeah. Yeah. Hey, at least you can say you've got West Texas West Texas experience. So what uh what do you like most about being in your role now here at AES and, and what do you like most about AES and what we do and how we add value to the marketplace? You know, I think one of the funnest things with that I do is that I, I still get to talk to all of you guys that are that are on the uh kind of the battlefield you know you you guys that are talking to customers you know i still interact with mainly with with the sales guys the account managers the um engineering managers i feel like i i might not be able to answer great detail about what every single region does but i'm fortunate enough to where i've been exposed to all the different regions i can have a semi-intelligent conversation about most places right and uh, it's just, you know, it's it's fun to work for guys or work with guys that take pride in what they do and uh, work together. Yeah. You know, we, a lot of us are friends outside of the office, even, you know. So it's like working for a big, big family. And it's fun. Yeah. No, I have to say, I mean, I've been here now for quite a while. And uh, it is, it's, it's kind of like a family we're big enough to where we've made a pretty good splash in the market. Um, but, you know, that's one of the things I love working for the company, too, is it's like, 
you know, you're you're a phone call away, a text message away. I mean, there's not too many guys out there that can say, hey, I can text a vice president at eight o'clock at night asking, you know, something as simple as whatever. What do you think about this? Or, hey, I need to set a price. Are you cool with it? And you reply right away. So that part of it, I, I truly enjoy. And for myself, same thing. I love coming to work. I, you know, everyone works together. Uh, so, yeah, I, I can identify with you on that. And in working for someone like yourself, it's cool because you'll come down onto the sales floor and and BS with us just like we're on a rig. You know what I mean? It's like no one's head's too big to to have a bit of humility. And, and we're all, you know, we all like to have a good time. We work hard and we play hard. So it's uh, it's it's a good place to be. And um, Matt, I mean, what you con- you came from, you know, similar as a, as a large company. Would you kind of agree with James's perspective on working for a company our size? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, the family element is... You know, it's just like the smallest things. If somebody has something going on, you know, with their with their family or something outside of work, you know, everybody is real protective, gives that person space to handle their business and, and you know, welcome them back. Um, and we're we're small enough that we know what's going on in each other's lives and we can appreciate that. So we can encourage each other. We can, um, you know, back each other up. And, you know, we still get the job done and have a really good time and, um so it's just, it, it's neat to have that all around experience where, you know, in larger organizations, you know, sometimes people can get, you know, hey, this person's got this job and they stay over there and this person has this job. And a, a lot of it's just, you know, it's it's not very personal because it's someone's in another office across town or across the country. And um, here we get a lot of face to face. We keep in touch. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with everything y'all are saying. All right. Cool. Well, James, is there anything else that you want the audience to know about you or AES or any any final closing words before we sign up? You know, just uh, <clears throat> like I was saying before, it, it I think that uh, our company as a whole, we we take that uh, the challenge of what we do here is taking something that might not be the most technically challenging thing in the world. But the challenge is to be able to do it right over and over and over and over again. And we take that seriously here. And, you know, I think we got a, we built a good crew. We've got a great lab team, great R&D team, great mud engineers, great field supervisors, um, you know, wives that support us. <laughs> right. Most importantly, Absolutely. if we're happy at home, we're happy to come to work, too. So. Well, James, certainly appreciate it. Hopefully we didn't take up too much of your time here. But uh, everyone out there, if you want to hear more about AES Drilling Fluids, we'll put uh, the link in the show notes. Uh, We'll put the email address, too. If you have any questions for James, uh, we'll put our podcast email out there. Matt, you got anything before we sign out, buddy? Nothing here. Awesome. Well, thanks again for listening. Please leave a review and give us five stars and support the show. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.